0: Hi, everyone. Back at you with another episode of ESEC Lending Insights, where we keep it unscripted, real, and interesting.
1: Unscripted, Peter? I would say that's definitely true, but interesting. Why don't we let our listeners decide on that one? What we are here to do, folks, is share with you our thoughts and perspectives on the securities lending industry, whether that be about demand trends or just what's going on in the industry. And now, over to our episode. Let's go. Welcome back to another episode of ESEC Lending Insights. I am Brooke Gilman and I'm hosting today. My friends, Peter Basler and Jim Maroney have both abandoned me here on a Friday. Supposedly they're working hard, but I'm excited today because I have another friend that maybe I don't talk to quite as regularly anymore, but still love to catch up and that's Matt Chessum. Matt is a director with S&P Global Market Intelligence and their securities finance division. And Matt, welcome back to the podcast.
0: Yeah, well, thanks for having me. I'm a very loyal friend. I've come back to see you when everybody else has abandoned you.
1: Yes, thank you, Matt. I appreciate that. I can always count on you. So Matt, before we get into it, I have a few things. One is last night, I know you attended the industry securities finance charity ball in London. So for those listeners that either were there or weren't there, I'd love for you just to give us a quick recap on how that event was last night.
0: Yeah, so it was brilliant. It was fantastically well attended, which was great to see. I'm sure that they raised loads of money for lots of really great charities, lots of faces to be seen, new and old. So it was a great opportunity to catch up with the market. It was a good opportunity for everybody to be together and celebrate what we all do the best, which is network and support each other and support the great causes that this charity event was supporting. So it was great. It was a really good evening. Great espresso martini bar. Uh, halfway okay. through the evening there was a good band there was some dancing I saw some people that weren't named cutting some pretty funky moves on the dance floor so All right. yeah well yeah, I, I think, wasn't
1: there so it couldn't have been me think, normally uh, that's my title
0: I think a good time was had by everybody there were right. some great things to bid on in the auction as well so hopefully next year there'll be even more people there and they'll raise even more money
1: That's fantastic. Okay. All right. Well, let's get into it. We can catch up on the other things going on in London. Obviously, I know you guys are preparing for a pretty big ceremony on Saturday and God save the king and all, but let's stay focused in the securities finance space for the moment. So we last chatted, we probably chatted right at the start of the year. And at the time we were more recapping the finish of 2022 and Q4 and how revenue was. At the time, I think it was in January, we were reflecting on how the year was kicking off and what the expectations were. Here we are on Cinco de Mayo, the 5th of May, and obviously well past Q1 and getting midway through Q2. So give us a sense of how the year started. And maybe first we can talk Q1 and how Q1 was recapped in terms of overall performance for the market, and then we'll go from there.
0: Sure. I'm sure you've been seeing it. I mean, Q1 was in an incredible quarter for securities finance activity. There was a massive $3.4 billion worth of revenues that were generated, and that was a 24% increase on Q1 2022. Now, those numbers, they were split between $2.6 billion in equities and just under $800 million in fixed income revenues. Now, the majority of asset classes over Q1 experienced double-digit increases when compared with Q1 equity revenues in general, they increased 24% year on year and fixed income revenues did fantastically well as well. A lot of the momentum that was built up last year in the fixed income markets and a lot of the strong activity is still feeding through into this year as well. And Q1 was exceptional when it comes to either corporate bonds or the government bond space. Lots of revenues were made. Average fees were particularly high in corporate bonds. I think from memory, they hit about 46 basis points average, which is very impressive. In the fixed income markets, what was interesting is that average fees were quite high, but utilization has been quite low in comparison to previous years as well. But I think and this is where it gets interesting whether you guys are seeing the same as what we're seeing in Mm. the data. So really, I would say that the strong points in Q1 from the equity markets were, of course, U.S., equity specials which yep. have been generating some very impressive fees through the back end of last year or through the last half of last year and that's following through especially into q1 this year and it's not just u.s equities MIA. we're seeing more specials activity and we're also seeing specials activity creep up across the apac region as well but really when we talk about specials i mean the u.s is just flying at the moment over one billion dollars worth of revenues or specials revenues were generated from U.S. equity specials alone during Q1.
1: And Um, going back to the corporates, that's obviously the full corporate picture when you talked about, I think you said 46 basis points, maybe. Do you break down investment grade and high yield? I'm sure most of that's been where the real value is, it's driven by the high yield, but are there separate stats at that granular level?
0: No. So I can't tell you the average fee. I could go away and work that out for you quite easily, but I don't have those numbers to hand. But what we can see is that really, when you look at corporate bonds, the majority of revenues were generated from investment grade rather than non-investment grade corporate bonds over the quarter, and they were US dollar denominated as well. When you look at the actual revenue growth in corporate bonds, really, it started towards the back end of 2020, and it's just risen massively ever since. Every quarter, quarter on quarter, it keeps growing and growing and growing. I think what we've started to see heading into April is that there might be a slight leveling off. Revenues are still particularly high. They were still around the $100 million mark during April, which is exceptional compared to what we've seen in the past. But we do see that they're not growing anymore, but they do seem to be reaching a fairly stable limit now. I'm not really too sure that there's that much room left to go given, I suppose, that we're getting close to the tops of the interest rate hiking cycle, I suppose, investors are perhaps sure. positioning or slowing down on some of the positions that they're taking heading into that, that kind of plateau stage.
1: Sure, we've seen a tremendous amount of demand for corporates. It's definitely been a bright spot for us as well. And we've brought on a lot of new supply in the corporate space, but we've also, we've always had a decent amount of supply. And as you know, with the hat you used to wear in your former life, Matt, on the buy side, beneficial owner side, We also auction a lot of corporate bonds, and that's a place still where not necessarily for all portfolios, but for some of the portfolios, especially more the high yields, you're going to see a lot of exclusive demand still in the market, I think, for those assets where there can be a premium even over and above where the discretionary market's trading. So we have a lot of those auctions upcoming in the next month or so, and so we're excited and looking forward to those results.
0: Yeah, and I mean, they're always fantastic assets to be able to put into an exclusive can tell you that from first-hand experience, we, we generated a lot of revenues in my past life from getting those to market in that manner. And there's multiple drivers behind corporate bonds, and especially if you look towards the high-yield space, just general liquidity is one, but also the increase in interest rate cycle. That's definitely helps having a lot more directional play in the market as well. So the value driven by corporate bonds and the opportunities that are there for end borrowers have been growing consistently over the last 18 months, and you know that really has been to the benefit benefit of securities lenders. Now, what we see from our data, and it'd be interesting to get your perspective on this, I suppose, is we don't see very specific issues either. I mean, we see Mm -hmm. pretty solid demand across the board, which obviously if anybody's got some corporate bond portfolios waiting to be lent, then that's great for them because no matter what is in there, they should have some decent value to the borrowing community.
1: Yeah. And we would see the same as well. So let's go back. You made a, it was a very subtle remark when you were first introing it, but you said the majority of asset classes have all increased year over year. What have been the exceptions though to that? Is that specifically in the ETF or exchange traded product sector or are there others? Give us a little bit of view on anything that hasn't been buoyed year over year.
0: Really, if you look at it, I suppose there are two areas. So ETFs, I mean, they had a fantastic year last year. I think a lot of the drivers that drove or pushed the revenues in the ETF space higher, they do still exist, but probably to a lesser extent. There was a lot of activity in HYG, which is the high yield US dollar denominated bond, iShares ETF. And I think that, you know, there was a lot of interest rate movement last year. There was a lot of hiking activity and that obviously filtered into the demand for being able to hedge or being able to source those assets to be able to execute trades down the line. But there was also a lot of activity in some of the more specific ETFs that were technology-based, like ARC, some of the smaller cap indices, the Russell 2000, for example, IWM, and even the FTSE 250 ETF saw a lot of activity last year. Now, they still are in demand, but the fees being generated by them... It probably declines somewhat, so the revenues are declining as well. And I think that when we say they're not doing well, it's still an attractive it's on a relative asset basis, class, yeah. yeah. To borrowers, then there's still money to be made, but it's just not as strong as it was last year.
1: I wonder if that's more just a factor that other specials have increased quite a bit year over year, and therefore, kind of on a relative basis, you're seeing less maybe demand in the ETF space, or demand has waned a bit.
0: Yeah, I completely agree. I think there's lots of demand drivers still present in that sector. There's still a lot of demand for those assets. It's just the strength of demand is not as consistent, perhaps, as it was Mm -hmm. throughout last year. I think there are definitely peaks and troughs, depending on what's happening in the broader economy that filters through to the demand for those assets, where I think it pretty much last year, it was pretty consistent throughout the year. And those demand drivers were steady throughout. And therefore, you know, everybody was always after those assets, but they're still doing very well as an asset class, still generating great returns for, for lenders. The only other sector that isn't possibly doing as well is APAC equities revenues declined slightly when compared to Q1, they were down by about 4%. But is again, Is one
1: market contributing more than others? Or is that sort of across the board?
0: Now, when you look at APAC in particular, Japan has been doing very well recently, and Hong Kong has been doing very well recently. Some of the other markets are generally down. If you look at what happened over April, it was really Hong Kong and Japan that were up and all of the other markets were down year on year. But we are seeing a bit more specials activity in the APAC region, as we said before, and a lot of those specials in South Korea and Hong Kong. We've had a few Japanese specials, but I think that's more because of the seasonal activity that's been taking place over the last six to eight weeks. But the reopening of China and the story behind that is driving the demand behind some of the Hong Kong-denominated stocks a lot higher. You've got small International Holdings that's been around for a long time as a special in the region, Popmart International. You've got a couple of the EV producers in there as well. And those top 10 that we usually count in our list as equity specials in the region, they're generating more and more revenues as the months go by.
1: So you were just talking kind of at a sector level in Japan, but let's maybe switch back to the U.S. market for a moment because there's probably a lot more to discuss there. So one historical theme over the year or two prior the handful of years prior in the U.S. market was there was sort of a lack of overall specials. We had some specials, but they were super concentrated specials. And they were either like the meme stocks, maybe some IPO names, things like that. Maybe some of those ETFs that you talked about earlier, but I guess two questions. One is focused around how has the concentration of specials evolved year over year. And and what are we seeing now? Has the market for specials deepened? Are there more names that have greater value? And then maybe also, if you look at it more with the sector lens on what changes have happened in terms of where demand is being driven from, is it still, obviously that you just talked about the EV space in Japan. I know in the U S that probably still is one of the hot ones in the U S as well, but what are some of the other themes at a sector level?
0: So what's interesting, if you look over the the highest revenue generating equities for Q1. Now, when we looked at it over the whole of 2022, they were all U.S. equities. During Q1, the majority of them are U.S. equities, but not all of them. We've got a Chinese ADR in there, which was XPeng. And we also had Roche Holdings as well, mm. which is a Swiss equity. So eight out of the 10 rather than 10 out of the 10 are, are US denominated during Q1, which is a slight change. But I mean, granted, it's not massive. But to answer your question, we're still seeing a lot of the same specials generating a lot of the same revenues. The meme stocks keep going. There's no let up there. But what we are seeing is that there is a broader reach in terms of sectors. And I mean, that just reflects what's been happening in the economy over the first quarter of the year as well. Towards the end of 2022, we had the fallout with crypto exchanges and that fed into any companies that kind of mined Bitcoin or had any technology edge to them that had anything to do with the crypto space. They became special. So that was a new sector filtering into our most specials list. And then obviously over March We've had the issues around some of the U.S. regional banks, so banking and financial services stocks, they've started filtering in as well. So the data suggests that the specials environment is becoming broader, but again, it's quite difficult in the specials world because it's really a case of the haves or the have-nots. I mean, if you look at AMC over Q1, it generated $233 million Mm. worth of revenues alone, which is massive If you had AMC, it was brilliant, but if you didn't, then you would have lost out on a big slug of revenue. And that's the yeah. same across the whole board of US specials.
1: I think um, the difference maybe is just that you're seeing more specials and in main index equity names or securities that are trading on some of the popular indices that a lot of institutions would have exposure to versus a handful of years ago, it was more about you know the IPO names. And sometimes the institutional investors don't dive in deep on those names early on. And so the haves and the have not. I mean, I agree. I still think that's the case. Or maybe my perspective on it is that it's a little bit more equalized nowadays, but...
0: Yeah, no, I mean, that's a very good point because it was the IPOs and the SPACs that really drove the market for specials in the US over the last couple of years. But that doesn't really seem to be the case anymore. I mean, SPACs, they're hardly ever spoken about apart from them being a bit of a flop nowadays. And then you see some of the names on the list. And yes, I completely agree with you. They are more mainstay holdings of most investment portfolios. So I think the most beneficial owners will be able to touch on some of the revenues that are generated right. by that special And activity. same thing
1: with like the regional banks as an example. I mean, a lot of those names, again, would have been, I mean, equity indices. And so again, broader exposure. Do you have a sense of out of the regional bank names in the US, like how deep that list is? Is it still four or five or so, or less than 10, if you will, names overall that sort of are trading more special? Or has that list deepened a little bit as of late?
0: So I believe that I haven't looked at it too recently, but from a couple of days ago, there is definitely about a top five group of stocks yeah. there that are very focused upon that have a lot of the borrowing activity taking place in them. It's not consistent over all of the regional names, but you know, the situation is very fluid and it seems to move from one bank to another. It is, I know, at the moment, we're literally depending seeing that on, right now. <laughs> yeah, d- depending yeah. on where investors think the most risk or inversely the most gain for themselves right. can be found, but I would suggest that a lot of those names in the regional banks, utilization is pretty high in those names, So it's becoming increasingly more difficult to borrow the stocks anyway, which inhibits hedge funds from putting on further shorts or just because they can't source the stock in the first place. But also, you know, the costs are going up because there's less stock available. So the rates are heading higher. So from an economic perspective, it makes it more difficult to execute those short positions as well, because the profitability behind them is decreasing as well.
1: Right. Yep. No, all of that's true. I agree with that. So maybe let's now, and especially since we're just finished up on the U.S. market, very relevant to that is the cash collateral reinvestment side of the transaction. Because you do receive data on performance for cash spreads, correct? And what people are yielding on their different cash guidelines and reinvestment profiles. So what has been the trend there? And obviously there's a lot to say in that space, just given interest rate activity over the past while. What's the summary on that?
0: Sure. So we saw during Q1, Q2 and Q3 of 2022, we saw cash reinvestment returns actually fall. But then from Q3 from last year, so Q3, Q4, Q1, they've been increasing again, which is obviously positive for anybody in the US who lends versus cash. I mean, not only did they have a bumper Q1 in terms of lending activity from a fee perspective, but they're also returning more reinvestment profits from their cash collateral as well. So hopefully a lot of US market participants would have seen a very good Q1 when you add the two numbers together. I think as interest rates are likely to have reached their peak in the US for the foreseeable future, hopefully that would just improve the reinvestment environment further because hopefully yield curves will start to normalize a little bit more and then investors will look to invest further along that yield curve, picking up the extra return as they go as well. So I think it is a very positive picture for U.S. securities lenders at the moment, especially any lending versus cash, and they're looking to reinvest that cash.
1: It is, definitely. It's kind of an interesting conversation, actually, on that, because, again, if you look over a longer time horizon, so let's talk about a typical U.S. institutional lender. They would have probably had cash collateral for years and that would have been going well. And then there was a period of time where the market really would have worked hard to educate them to broaden out their collateral set, to add more flexibility, to add an equity collateral and different indices there for good reasons. A lot of that being driven by bank regulatory capital charges and preferences for efficiency use of their assets and stuff and which to pledge. And so you would have seen a huge shift away from cash for a period of time and where where cash really was kind of the least favorable collateral to pledge. For a while, their dealers were happy to pledge cash because equities then became scarce and harder to finance. And now you're in a situation where it's actually interesting. I think a lot of sophisticated U.S. lenders have now structured a program that is very flexible and can adapt easily to whatever the preferred market structure is at the moment in terms of collateral profile, you know, in terms of what the dealers might be willing to pledge and what the opportunities are on the cash collateral reinvestment side. But now you're seeing some lenders with those sophisticated programs that can do a lot on the non-cash equity side, but also have somewhat flexible guidelines on the reinvestment side where you're again back in maybe the land of the olden days where there is a strong preference for cash because there's so much opportunity for additional yield pickup on that reinvestment. And so kind of feels a little bit like the tables have shifted all the way back again, But now I guess the the good news is is that lenders are better positioned to sort of adapt when they need to, depending upon where greater revenue can be made.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's positive for everybody. It's positive for the market. It's positive for the broader markets because there's more liquidity there. But what I always find interesting about cash collateral is when you look at the figures and the returns that were made, it was Q2 back in 2020 that saw the highest cash reinvestment returns. Mm -hmm. And that was when Mm -hmm. the Fed actually cut interest rates because of the the COVID-19 pandemic and that's when everybody was making a massive spread on their cash because obviously it it had been locked in for longer and now that rates are back up at five five and a quarter percent the reinvestment returns are comparatively tiny compared to what they were when rates were actually cut so it's the actual inverse of what you would possibly Mm. imagine in that situation which which until you start thinking about it you don't really take that for granted you kind of think lower rates lower returns or and higher rates higher returns but it was actually the inverse that played out back yeah. in 2020.
1: So Matt, we've covered a lot of ground today. Let's go 30,000 foot level and talk sort of total return to lendable and how that's shaping up for the market broadly. And then maybe I want to hear about how you think the rest of Q2 might play out, 2023 might play out. Any other anecdotes you have for me today?
0: Yeah, sure. So as you probably expect, with such a significant increase in revenues over the quarter, And with asset values falling last year from their recent highs, you know, the return to lendable has really increased over Q1. It now stands just over 1.1 basis point across all securities. If you split it out between equities and fixed income assets, you're probably looking at about 1.3 basis point for equities and just over two basis point for fixed income assets. Now, that's increased, which is great for everybody. I think that's only going to increase higher as we go into Q2 and Q3. We track the return to lendable over a couple of indices as well, over the fixed income indices. I mean, it's incredible what we see return to lendable moving towards. We've just gone over five basis points, for example, on the IBOX Global Government Bond return to lendable. That's up from about 4.7 basis points in Q4. The MSCI world has gone up to 1.3 from one2 One, the only kind of indices that saw a decrease in return to lendable over Q1 was the MSCI Asia Pacific X Japan. So that
1: tracks with the earlier data you were sharing. Yeah.
0: So that decreased to 4.2 basis points from 5.5. But, you know, I think Q1 is really a very good follow on from Q4 2022, incredible revenues, best Q1 revenues to date. I think for the securities finance market, I think a lot of that is going to follow into Q2. If you think that we've got a very strong US specials market, we've also got some seasonal activity that's taken place in Europe that usually drives revenues higher across EMEA. We're also seeing some specials activity come back in APAC as well, especially in Hong Kong, South Korea. Taiwan is doing slightly better than it had done last year as well. We had the South Korean regulator as well come out saying that they will look into lift short selling restrictions. So that should give a bit of a boost to the South Korean market. So I think that we're in a very good situation here. Pretty much every asset class that we can see is really performing well from a securities lending perspective. We spoke about ETFs before. It's not that they're not performing well, they're just performing less well than they did last year. So I think for anybody lending their securities at the moment or anybody thinking about lending their securities, I think this is a very good time to start or to look at the potential returns that are on offer because the market is very buoyant. There's lots of pockets of demand. Rates are relatively high. As well, which is great for lenders because it means that they're taking on less risk and getting more reward. So I think we're in a really strong position. I think a lot of that's going to carry through, especially Q2, Q3, Q4 remains to be seen. We'll see where interest rates go and we'll see what happens to the fallout from the financial stocks in the US. I think that we can all look forward to the rest of 2023 with some pretty cautious optimism. But from what we're seeing at the moment, it's going to be a pretty impressive year.
1: Good. Good. All right. Well, we're going to hold you to that. And we'll of course bring you back onto the podcast, maybe a few more times this year. I'm excited to see you in person soon. I'm heading over for the Isla conference, which I'm really looking forward to, probably along with much of the market, but I think you're going to be there this year as well. So yeah, well, we'll so uh... yeah,
0: look at, looking forward to attend that. I'd have to remember my factor 50 because, you know, when I think more than a 50 watt light bulb and I start burning. So yeah. the, the Portuguese sun, I think is something I'm going to have to try and avoid, but I'm looking forward to seeing everybody again. It's a good opportunity to really get to grips with what's happening in the broader market.
1: Good. And listeners, I have to let you know that both our houses, Matt and I are both in a work from home mode today on a Friday, but both our houses have remained quiet while we were concerned. Matt has baby chickens in the room next to him. And I have a puppy, a baby dog at my feet. So neither have made a chirp or a whine or bark or a howl or anything. So I think that's successful.
0: Yeah, well, and the cat hasn't got the chickens yet as well, so they're more successful for the point of view. Are they, uh, are they in, this, view. They're
1: in the same room?
0: Yeah, they're just behind and
1: me. The chickens are, and so is the cat just somewhat immune to the chickens, having yeah, well, been around the, them now?
0: The cat seems to be a little bit scared of the chickens at the moment, so I'm just hoping it lasts for the weekend until we have to give them back to the nursery that we're babysitting them for.
1: Okay. Well, I know you and I both have children of similar ages. I can just tell you if chickens showed up to my house and then we had to give them back to someone else, I think that would be a big problem. So good luck with that. Yeah, My, uh, my kids would definitely, back definitely back. adopt <laughs> any animal possible. Thank you, Matt, for joining. And listeners, thank you for tuning in to another ESEC Lending Insights. we will promise to bring Matt and s and Global Market Intelligence back again later this year. But as always, if you have questions or interests that you want to hear more about, please do let us know. I'm threatening to bring Jim and, well, Bowser's now told me he can't. But I'm threatening to bring at least Jim back onto the podcast next week. So for all of you out there, I know there's a lot of Jim fans. Hopefully he'll be back on the pod next week. Jim fans. Wow. Yes. Well, at least, you know, so Matt, the thing is, is he tells me that he has a lot of fans. Like he, <laughs> he literally count, spent 10 minutes this morning <laughs> telling me how someone was so excited to meet him in person because he's such a big fan of Jim's in the podcast. All right. Oh, I know. Have a good weekend. Okay. Thanks everyone.
0: Thanks for listening, everybody. Hope we left you with something interesting and productive to utilize in your daily securities lending activities.
1: And friends, don't forget to subscribe to East Deck Lending Insights wherever you get your podcasts. And now for our disclaimer. This material is for your private information and does not constitute legal tax or investment advice. There's no representation or warranty as to the current accuracy of nor liability for decisions based upon such information. Thank you for listening.